Good morning, everybody. If you'd find a place to sit. Um, my name's Steve. I'm one of the pastors here. I have the uh, honor this morning of talking together with a friend of mine, Marisol. Um, I'm actually a replacement pastor for this morning. Um, if you see John Heaver out there someplace, just like shower him with love. Big, big, hard hugs and things like that would be really, really appropriate. If he screams a little bit and says something like, I just had surgery, stop it. I mean, just ignore him. He loves kind of uh, a special touch. It touches is his love language. So just, uh, just jump in there with him. Uh, so it's really good uh, this morning to be with you guys. Um, we do have a tradition uh, at H2O to have an opportunity to hear our stories, to share our stories, because our stories tell us about what God has done. And we're going to jump in the deep end uh, this morning uh, with Marisol. Uh, thank you so much for, thank you for uh, allowing me. us to hear your heart and know some of your heart's journey this morning. And um, let me just ask, you know, why do you even want to tell your story? First, I want to say I'm super nervous and don't look at my gray hair, okay? Just don't look at it. I think I'm getting more gray hair as I'm sitting here. <laughs> um, There's wisdom in those. Yes, that's, part of it is wisdom, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, my story, I want, I want to be able to share my story to let everyone know about um, my journey and how deep my journey goes and um, also to let everyone know that if I went through my life and I'm still here, and I'm still loving Christ, and I'm following God, and through all my ups and downs and my trials, anybody can do it, anyone. And there's tons of hope in that. Tell us a little bit about your childhood. I'll go kind of fast, because um, it's a lot, but um, growing up, I grew up in, in Brooklyn, in the ghetto of Brooklyn. I actually grew up in Brownsville, East New York. Um, it was a tough, time in the 70s. I mean, there was a lot going on in New York City, and um, crime was really crazy at that time. It still, it still is, but it was more so then. Um, I grew up with three brothers. I'm the, I'm the youngest. Um, I know, according to my parents, I was a mistake. Um, and a never happy forget. accident. <laughs> yeah. And um, so I grew up in, in the city in Brooklyn, and it was a tough time, and my parents uh, both full-blown alcoholics. Um, my brothers were a lot older than I am, um, and they were all teenagers, and they were on drugs and in jail, and um, I basically had to grow up really quick when I was a child because my mom also suffered from schizophrenia, was on medication, and when she didn't take her medication and drank a lot, she ended up in the psych ward, and I used to visit my mom very often in the psych ward. Mm. Wow. Yeah. That is uh, not the kind of uh, picket fence uh, growing up that, you know, we think, wow, America should be all of those things. And so what a challenging set of circumstances for your young heart to have to deal with. Yeah. Um, in many ways, you had to parent yourself. Yes. So um, were there, so tell us about, um, were there, you shared that there's some abuse pieces. Yeah. So. Um, Again, my mom was, um, suff she suffers still to this day, uh, schizophrenia, and um, she would, she was having an affair with um, my mom's, with my dad's friend, and um, she would do things that were just really inappropriate, like she would 
crush her pills um, and she would put them into my dad's drink so that he could fall asleep because the medication was so powerful, um, it would knock my dad out and that way she could have an affair with his friend. And his friend actually um, started sexually abusing me. And um, I think my mom, I mean, I know my mom knew about it. She just pretended that she didn't know. And it was really painful because, you know, as a child, you want to be protected by your parents. And I couldn't say anything to anyone because it was really difficult to talk to anyone because I felt kind of ashamed. Like, maybe it's my fault, I thought, sometimes. And then um, at some time, you know, at some point, I got really just disgusted by it. And um, I was watching a show called Columbo with my dad, that was a long time ago, and um, there was a, a rape victim on the show, and she came, and the, and the, and the victim was actually um, afraid to tell her father, and um, I was sitting there with my dad, and I was just thinking, like, I just want to tell you the truth, but I couldn't. So I just said, I'm going to be strong like that girl, and I'm going to face my, you know, my, my mom's boyfriend. And I just told him one day, because he said that he would tell my dad and my dad would go to jail. I mean, if I told my dad, my dad would go to jail and just told, you know, I was a young child, seven years old. And I remember I said to my dad, to my accuser, I was like, I'm done. This is it. Like, I don't care. You could tell my father. My father's not going to go to jail. You're going to go to jail. And I told him, you better never, ever come back here again. And if you ever come back here again, I promise you, you're going to regret it. And I said that like a little child and I stood up to him and... I said, I'm going to tell my father. And I told my mother, I will tell my dad. And my mom was so angry with me. And she said I was a liar and all these things. But it just, you know, it, it was what, what happened. And, and it was a part of my life that I wanted to help everyone. That, you know, as a child, I still felt the love of God. Like, it's just strange that I would sit there and I would just say, God, just protect me and just shield me. And... I remember I was, you know, Catholic, and I grew up as a Catholic, and I would pray the Our Father and, and the Hail Mary, and I would just say, I want you to just cover me, just, and I didn't know what the blood of Jesus was, but I was just like, just cover me and protect me, and I don't want to be in pain anymore. I don't want to feel this anymore, and I didn't want to tell anybody because I was so afraid that people would just think it's me, like it was my fault, but it wasn't, and my story is that I realized it was my body. It wasn't my spirit. It wasn't my soul. As I got older, I realized, like, that, that wasn't me. Like, it was just my body. I was abused. My body was abused. It wasn't me inside. It wasn't my brain. It wasn't my spirit. It wasn't any of that. It was just the physical. And I just kept telling myself that as I got older and older. So God used a TV show and, and his ministry to you through... Uh, things that you had learned in, in your religious upbringing to show himself to you, and you made a stand. Yes. And that made all the difference. Yes. And so let's, we're going to kind of turn a corner, and it's going to feel a little bit um, jolting in some senses, but so how did you come to know the Lord then? So, um, I, again, like I said, I, I've been through a lot of things in my life, and um, I know prayer was always one of them. Like, I lost my best friend at, at seven um, she was shot in front of me. We were playing in front of the building, and they started shooting. And I remember that was the first time that when she had, when she was shot in front of me, I remember when she went down, I looked at her, and I was like, and I remember saying, oh, my God, hope, no, don't go. And 
And I remember I ran, like, because it was, there was shooting. Yeah. And, and I remember saying, God, please, 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 don't let her die, don't let her die. And I actually felt God with me. Mm. And she did. I mean, she died. But yeah. he was with me. But like, I felt you. his love. I yeah. felt him just with me. Yeah. And that was the first time that I really felt God's presence, like, really yeah. felt it. Yeah. And from that point, I just kept going, you know, um, towards God. But I had a lot of trials, like I said, as, as a teenager as well. But once I had my daughter, that's when I realized, like, God is real because mm. I gave birth to my daughter by myself. I didn't have anybody in the room with me. And I remember mm. saying, God, you know, get me through this, please, because yeah. I don't have anyone here. None, of, none of my family showed yeah. up and I had to give birth by myself. Mm. And I didn't have an epidural and that's crazy. As an, it's crazy. My, my wife would attain to that, attest to that. And yes. I mean, I thought I was losing my mind, but I literally yeah. focused on, on God. And yeah. from that point on, I just continued to go yeah. towards God and was saved in 2006. 2006. Yes. Wow. What a yeah. pathway. Amen. <laughs> what would you want, Marisol, in light of your story, what would you want to say to anyone who knows or is an abuse victim? I just want you to know that don't give up on love. Don't ever give up on love, please. God loves you so much. Like, it's so tough. I know it's really hard. You know, you feel so alone and you feel like nobody cares, but truly God does care. He loves you so much. He's in your heart. He's with you every day. He's right there by your side. Just turn to him and remember, it's just a shell. It's just a shell, it doesn't matter. I know it hurts, it's painful, but it's a shell and what really matters is what's inside here. Our spirits, our souls, that's it. Amen. Can I pray for you? Join with me, please. Lord, thank you so much for your constant pursuit of my sister, Marisol going through places in her heart's journey that no one should ever have to go through. And yet you never left her nor forsaken her. I ask you, Lord, that even today you would comfort her with the comfort that only you can provide. Allow her to know that her courage is kind of like, in an even more direct way, that little viewing of Columbo. Courage giving, courage inspiring, allowing others to hear her story will spread out like a wildfire. Thank you for her uh, heart to turn to you and to not turn cold. Thank you for your pursuit of her like you pursue each one of us. I ask you that even today you comfort Marisol in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Marisol. Thank you, sir. You know, we have been talking in our college group. We've been telling our stories and kind of sharing our stories with each other. And one of the themes that has come up over and over, and I think it does even with us telling our stories on Sunday mornings, is that um, I know that we, we pray and we hope that God protects 
we ask for that, and that's important. However, um, as we've listened to each other's stories, I think we can see that some of the worst, most traumatic things that we've been through, that somehow in the midst of those, God has used those events to draw us to himself. And so that can really provide hope in the midst of the most difficult circumstances. It doesn't mean we go out looking for those, obviously, but knowing that God uses the great things and the really difficult things. And so, um, Marisol, we ad admire your courage, and it's just exciting for us to um, hear you share things that are really difficult and inspire others that may even be going through some of those very same things right now. So thank you so much. So we are continuing our series um, titled Creed. And last week we started this and, and we kind of started with an introduction that, hey, one of the reasons that we wanted to do this series is that Christians in general, um, kind of across the board, all the surveys that we read say that we are generally kind of biblically illiterate. Okay, and that much of Scripture, it's kind of new to us. Um, there was a new survey just done recently, a couple weeks ago, the George Barner Research Group said that half of those that were surveyed that said they were Christ followers felt that to tell someone about Jesus was immoral, that it was wrong. So here's one of the main commandments, like Jesus, before he leaves the earth, says, don't keep this to yourselves. We need to tell everybody, tribe, every tongue, every nation, let's take this to the ends of the earth. I want you to teach in everything that I've commanded you. And yet now we live in a culture where half of those who are following Jesus would say, we can't do that. We shouldn't do that. That's not right. And so we are missing some really important truths. And so um, early on in the church history, there were times where they had to say, this is what we believe and this is why we believe it. So our hope is that this series really helps you guys that are following Jesus to get more grounded in your faith. And for those of you that are bringing friends, if you're here and maybe you haven't been in a, a church in a long time, we're really glad that you're here. And we hope that you learn more about the Christian faith and some of its distinctives and why it's so different and why it's changed millions of lives over the years. So last week, we had to kind of fly through some things. We were a little bit behind on time. <clears throat> and I had just finished talking about Genesis um, chapter 1, verse 26, where it says, let's make man in our image. Okay, so very beginning, we're talking about creation. And there was this phrase where it talks about God making us in his image. And it's this first reference to the Godhead, okay? The Father and the Son and the Spirit working interdependently. So we have this unity and diversity in the community of the Trinity. Okay, all right, great. That sounds, you know, easy to remember, but man, it's truth right there. So let's think about that again. Unity and diversity, these three persons in one in this community. And they work together in this Trinitarian relationship, okay? So we have the Lord creating, 
We have the Spirit hovering above creation. And then in John, we're told that Jesus was present too at the creation. Like he's actually given credit for the creation. So we have this relational being who does not work alone, but in concert and provides a model for us as his body. That we get to work together that we're on mission together, and that we're serving each other in our kind of our distinct roles, okay? So not surprisingly, um, cults and other world religions deny the deity of Jesus, and this is one of the things they really take issue with, because um, in in many other kind of faith systems, Jesus would be described as maybe a prophet, or he became God for a short period of time. Um, but when it comes to this issue, this this um, phrase, the Trinity, they take extreme issue with it. The first thing that some will say is that the term Trinity, it's not even found in Scripture. And that's right. That's exactly right. It is not. Okay, about 300 years or so later in the history of the church, Tertullian, most scholars would say, was one of the first ones that talked about it. The reason it came up is that it was very clear from Scripture and even their, their experience that we had the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit described continually working together and in unison and submitting to one another. And so they really had to come up with some kind of word that was shorthand for it. And so it's taught consistently throughout Scripture. Now, Jesus, in a couple, I mean, there's a number of times, but in one situation, he attempted to explain just two-thirds of the Trinity to some of the religious leaders of that day, and that got him in hot water. Okay, so John 10, 25 says this, Jesus answered, I did tell you, he's talking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders there. I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Okay, this does not go over well at all. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works. He's done great things in front of them, and they know it. For which of these do you stone me? And they reply, we are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. They understood that very clearly, that he was saying, I am God. So Jesus just explains two-thirds of the Trinity there, putting himself equal to God, and their first response is, okay, we've heard enough put him to death. Now, imagine if Jesus then went on and said, oh, wait, I'm not even done yet, guys. You know the Holy Spirit? I'm one with him too. How about that? That would not have gone over either. 
He didn't even need to go there. And so there are a number of verses, and, and we're going to unpack a few of them here, where Jesus and the Spirit, the Father, they're kind of used interchangeably. There is this um, just relational unity that we see. And so I want to bring out one scenario where all three show up together, okay? So they're all in the room together. And it's Jesus' introduction to the world. And they're coordinating and they're kind of introducing Jesus' mission to the world. And it's at Jesus' baptism. Okay, so Jesus is being baptized and the whole family shows up. All right, so Jesus, we see him. He's being baptized. The Father speaks, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit descends on him. So there's Father, Son, Holy Spirit right there in the same spot. Okay, so there's the Trinity happening. Now, why does this get critiqued so harshly? Well, if you can deny this, you can topple the Christian faith. You can reduce Jesus to just a good moral teacher Maybe a prophet has some good things for us to listen to, but certainly not God. He could be our helper. He could be our friend. He can have some wisdom, but he can't forgive sin because he is not God. So you see, this is really important to what we believe. This is why the Christians had to really say, this is who we believe God to be, and this is how he operates. Because if you can topple this and he's not God, then all those other things that Jesus shared are really just his opinions. Just another human's opinions and about, you know, 75% of the theology that we believe, it doesn't, it's irrelevant. It's not valid. So the major cults and other world religions, they want to deny Jesus' rightful place as judge and forgiver. They don't want that. He needs to just be a human. If the Trinity is true, then another truth emerges, and that is if Jesus is God in the flesh, He came to us, not us coming to Him and inventing Him. See, Christianity is the story of God becoming human to rescue us, not us reaching up to him by jumping through a bunch of hoops, by doing my two-year mission, riding my bike around Orlando, knocking on people's doors, giving all my money to ensure God's blessing, taking communion weekly so that my sins are forgiven. Every world religion is either effort to get to God or Jesus plus. Jesus plus our behavior. And the truth of the gospel is neither of those are biblical. Instead, what the gospel says is it's Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing. And they were asking, the religious leaders were asking Jesus, tell us what all the things, like everything that we need to do, give us the list. 
Tell us the hoops that we need to jump through. So they asked him in John 6, 26 through 29. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you were looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. It's referring to a miracle and why they're all excited about him. It says, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to, inter- to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him talking about himself, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, here it is, what must we do to do the works God requires? One sentence Jesus responds with. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Jesus plus nothing. So Jesus offers salvation to us by leaving the presence of the Father, becoming a man, paying for human sin, our sin. The Trinity makes that a spiritual reality for us. Next thing about this doctrine that is so important. The Trinity allows God... Excuse me, to enter and indwell each one of us. Romans 8, 15 says this, The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by Him, that's referring to the Holy Spirit, We cry, Abba, Father. With affection, he becomes our dad because of what the Spirit has done. And the disciples naturally, like, coming up to Jesus, like, the end there, they were concerned. They weren't totally understanding the entire picture, but there was this concern about him leaving And leaving their presence, they weren't sure exactly what that would look like, um, if they even really understood. And Jesus kind of preempts that, and probably, maybe this isn't on the forefront of your minds right now, guys, but it will be later after I die. But I want you to know this. It's actually better for you that I go away physically because I'm going to do something different. I am going to send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will then indwell each one of them. So that the Trinity, the Trinity allows this doctrine for the church and the body to spread. So we are then his image bearers throughout the world. I mean, it's really, it's really unique. It's a very different faith than anything else that's out there. So now, all of us who have received the Spirit are now part of Christ's body. And we fill the earth and we bear His image so others can see Jesus in the gospel. It's a really... Really neat thing. 
with monotheism or Islam, for example, we have God being above us and he's omniscient and transcendent, impersonal, not sure if we can even really get to know him. But with the Trinity, we have this human who be this God who becomes human and he's like us with emotions. He cries. He embraces us. He loves us personally and deeply. He restores us. He connects us with his creation. Totally different. I think of that scenario where Jesus was friends with a family with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and Lazarus dies, and Mary and Martha are just totally distraught. And Jesus cries with them cries with them. And yet what happens? Well, the God-man, Jesus, raises Lazarus, their brother, from the dead by the power of the Spirit. And so then you see the team working together again, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when they show up, some really neat things happen. I want to finish this morning um, with... A little more discussion about this relational nature of the Trinity and this example that the Godhead sets for us, that we're actually encouraged to take part in that. And so in Philippians 2, says this, and look at how this starts. This is really instructing us, okay? This is really instructing us very clearly, in our relationships with one another. So verses 6 through 11. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So everything he's going to say now is all about us in relationship with each other. Okay, your relationships with the other people in this room right now. That's what this is about. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. In other words, do not use power to oppress or to push anybody else down. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Instruction for us. Take the very nature of a servant to serve one another, to love one another. This was going to characterize the relationships of those believers was that it's no longer going to be about your own, about yourself and your, your family only and your success, 
But instead, you're going to live as a community, and you're going to love and serve one another. And if some are more powerful, whatever that means, you're not going to take any advantage of that. In fact, what you're going to do is you're going to lay your lives down for each other the way Jesus did. That is great stuff. And that's written directly to us. So here we see kind of the Trinitarian principles of mutually submitting to one another in love and servanthood. It's a great lesson for us. Then we get to express our gifts in the kingdom and we get to serve one another. So I love this relational piece of who God reveals himself to be. There's this submission and cooperation together. When I came to Jesus years ago, probably 30-something like that, I don't know, it's way too long ago, and some of you guys are like, that's not long ago at all. Right, Mark, Ernest? Exactly, right? Excellent gray hair, by the way. Yes. So I was thinking about this. When I first heard this verse, I was like, oh, my gosh, that is what happened to me. There were, like, the Trinity was after me. In John 6, Jesus is speaking. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. So there's cooperation and teamwork amongst those two. Here's what's crazy. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are cooperating to get you. They cooperated and worked together to go after Marisol in the midst of all the crap and all the garbage. Some refer to... uh, God the Father is the hound of heaven, like a hound after us. This Trinitarian God, it's a beautiful doctrine. It separates our faith and belief and application and personal experience from anything else that's out there on the planet. Hopefully it's becoming a little more clear why even in the first decades of following Jesus in the history of the church, they had to put a stake in the ground and say, this is what we believe. There was kind of this internal need because, man, this stuff is really different. It's different than anything else that's around. And they had debates because they, their lives had been changed and Jesus had changed them. And then afterwards, we're like, who did what? How did all this happen? And they were trying to figure it out. I want you to feel okay with having questions about this, okay? Like, it's okay. And even, I would say, to be expected. Like, even with this Trinitarian thing, like, I've had and heard people say, so who do I pray to? Like, to Jesus, the Father, or the Holy Spirit? I'm so confused, you know? How do we do this? Well, the general pattern that we see in Scripture is that we pray to the Father through Jesus and by the Holy Spirit, okay, which doesn't totally clear it up, okay? 
But that's what we see. And we see this interchangeable usage of those names. And I would say that generally, when it comes to the Father and the Son, it's probably a little bit easier for us to perceive. Like with the Father, we have this leader that's a little bit easier for us to, um, to relate to. And with the Son, we have obviously the gospel accounts and we see Jesus' interaction with other humans. And so that is a little easier for us to understand. But then when it comes to the Holy Spirit, there's a lot of confusion there of this in terms with this third person of the Holy Spirit. And even that, Scripture refers to the Holy Spirit as a person who has emotions. It's not an, he's not an, import, an impersonal force or energy, but that he can be grieved and that we can worship him. And so here's just some of the roles, and you can write these down real quick if this will help you. That the Holy Spirit is a revealer of truth. He reveals truth to us. Second, he reminds us of truth. Third, he gives us what to pray for. He speaks to our hearts and instructs us on what to pray and how to pray. Next, he fills us and he empowers us for his service. He powerfully works within us. And then finally, he's described as this deposit guaranteeing that God is returning to reclaim what is rightfully his. The Holy Spirit is indwelt inside you. Here's what Scripture says about Jesus, about God coming back for his own. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. That sealed you. That showed everybody that he is mine. She is mine. That's the deposit, and I'm coming back to get it. You are God's property. You have been purchased by Jesus' blood. That was the price that was paid. Like I said, if you're struggling to understand this, Please don't, like, be alarmed because it's not easy. The reason being is that we're talking about trying to understand a God who is unlike us, okay? Um, the, the God of the Bible is outside of time and space, and he's eternal. None of us live in that world, okay? Um, we're finite humans trying to understand this infinite God, and so we have to get a little bit out of our skin, and fortunately, in Christianity, we are not on our own guessing and making things up. We have Jesus, we have Scripture that has revealed to us what He's like. So, just want to encourage you, if you feel like, man, I'm confused, that God is totally cool with us approaching him with that. 
and saying, we're confused. I don't understand. I think of that happening with his disciples. They'd hear him teach all day, probably expound and explain things, and then later would say, what do you mean by this? We don't really understand. Nicodemus, very religious, devout man, who is referred to as Israel's teacher, comes to Jesus at night and says, okay, you've said this, and we know that you are someone who comes from God. We know that. No one else says the types of things that you say with your authority. I don't understand. What do you mean by this? That happens. I've always felt like like one of the things that's interesting about the God of the Bible is that even for the most dull of us, like I've said, I am sharp as a marble, okay, (laughs) is that I can understand really clearly that I have messed up and I have fallen short of God and I need a Savior. Like it's really basic, really basic for me. But also, in that, Scripture is so deep that we can go to great depths and never exhaust God. And that's the way it should be. If he really is God, we can never exhaust that. And I've always said, whether you're in the hills of West Virginia or the halls of Harvard, the gospel is for you. I love the words of Karl Barth, okay? He's this prolific theologian. He wrote all kinds of really thick books. He was a man after John's heart, okay? John loves to write. He's supposed to write a 500-word paper. It ends up being 36 pages. As a professor, would you like that being turned in? No, no. Okay, Barth was one of these theologians that he would write 1,700-page, like, volumes, volumes and volumes, prolific writer talking about who God is. And then once he was asked, like, hey, can you kind of boil it down? All that you've learned, everything, how would you, like, summarize it for us? You'd think you'd get something really deep. And here's what he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. So whether you've just come to know Jesus, you've been walking with him for decades, or this morning you're like, I don't know about him. The truth in Scripture is what you need. One of Barth's principles that he wanted to teach about was the concept of the Trinity. And one of the things he says is that There's no way that we would have come up with this type of God on our own. No way. It's beyond us. We never would have invented this type of God. And so Barth says that the Trinity was God's self-revealing to humanity. So we're really fortunate that we have a faith where God has communicated to us what he's like. On our own, I don't think we'd get anywhere close. So in this faith, we have the only expression also 
an incarnation of God in the flesh as a human telling us, this is what I'm like. Muhammad, Joseph Smith, other religious leaders, they may have claimed to speak for God or about God. Jesus said, I am God. John 14, 9, Jesus answered, and he's talking to Philip, talking to his disciples who have asked about his father. And he says, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? We've been walking together for a while. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You're looking at him. Again, Jesus was describing two-thirds of the Trinity right there. I'm going to finish with one last thing. And this is, this is not a trick question, okay? But this is going to be fun. And, and those of you guys in the band, you guys can come up now. Okay. So, put your thinking caps on. I always wanted to say that. I think it's the cheesiest phrase ever. Remember school? Every, you know, they always say that. Okay. I'm going to start with a question. This may blow our minds a little bit. Can anybody tell me where the Trinity was temporarily dismantled? I heard Jesus died. What did you say? The cross. Uh-huh. Got it. At the cross. Exactly. And I did not feed the answers to these two ladies right here. Let me describe this. It says when Jesus was on the cross, he became sin. God turned his face from him, and he was separated from the Father. He was separated from the Father. Even Jesus quoted Psalm 22 at that point. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father rejected his Son in our place. He was our substitute. It's called substitutionary atonement. So the Trinity took a hit right then. Didn't last long. The gang is all back together now, okay? But their relationship and connection has been restored just like our relationship and our connection with God can be restored. Jesus paid that separation. I mean, that was to be us. Scripture says our sin has separated us from God. And so God, the Father, doled that out, that punishment on his son right there. And that relational unity that they had all experienced in the intimacy, it was over, and he rejected his son, and he did to his son what should have been done to us. And all we have to do is receive that gift of salvation and trust in what he did in our behalf. Like Jesus said, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And we want to ask you, as we continue this series, are you ready to take that step to believe, to put 
trust in what Jesus did, not your own actions, not what you do or what you don't do. That is the heart of the gospel. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this incredible truth that you're a relational God who is after us, that you guys work together. Father, you work with the Son, Jesus. You work with the Spirit. All of you are in cahoots, and you are after us, and we're thankful for that. You're relational. You're so relational. You want us to be reconnected to you. And we thank you for that. God, wherever we're at in that journey, we pray and we ask that you would help us take the next step. We pray this in Jesus' name.